Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. And welcome back, everybody, to our 22nd episode. It's mid-June, and the summer swelter is on. PJM just completed its first annual capacity auction in roughly three years, and prices were down substantially. We're seeing new issues in Texas and concerns about demand response participation, and major industry players are announcing accelerated generation retirements. Is this turmoil simply a sign of the sweeping industry transition we've been hearing about for several years, or something more disconcerting afoot? We'll get into that later today. First, I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is a man known to get a little hot under the collar himself sometimes, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, and I want our audience to know that I wrote this next little bit on June 18th. If anyone's looking for other pessimistic prognostications, you know where to find me. The 76ers have ended their season, not with a bang, but with maybe something like a whimper. Is this simply another sign of the process playing out that we've been hearing about for several years now? And everybody on South Broad Street should just cool it or something more disconcerting afoot. And it's time to get the pitchforks out. Well, I mean, I will say I was a little hot under the collar after the, the Sixers <laughs> lost to the Hawks. That's for sure. And, you know, I've decided that, that was we, ugly. Yeah, it was ugly. And I decided, Rory, that we are the anti Ben Simmons podcast here because we're not afraid to take shots, even if we miss wildly. So um, we'll, we'll hold on to that as I like long as that. we can. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a tough way. It's tough when your team's the number one Boy. seed and goes out so, you know, so horribly. Man. But, you know, I don't know. Hope springs eternal, that but was, it's hard to have hope. It is hard to have hope on, on some topics, but hopefully we can come up with some hope for the electricity industry through today's podcast. And I'm hoping that our guest today will be able to provide some of that. Glenn, do you want to introduce who we have with us this time? I would be absolutely honored to do so, Rory. And we're joined today by one of the true titans in the energy space. Kurt Morgan is the president and chief executive officer of Vistra Corporation, one of the largest energy companies in the country. They pretty much own all forms of generation, a whopping 39,000 megawatts, a diverse portfolio with nuclear gas, coal battery. They're building the largest battery in the country, maybe even the world. It's just a you know really impressive company with a lot going on in the retail space. Kurt has had a number of positions through the years, and I've had a pleasure of working with him in a couple of these spots, whether it's CEO of Equipower or stops at places like NRG or Mirant or Reliant or Energy Capital Partners, uh, some other companies in the energy space. So it's wonderful that he's joined us today, taking time out of his very busy schedule to talk energy. Welcome to the GT Power Hour, Kurt. Hey, thank you, Glenn, and good to be with you again. I think we go all the way back to your days as chairman of the commission in Pennsylvania. And by the way, I was just in Pennsylvania and Harrisburg recently, and everybody still knows you and loves you in Pennsylvania, in case you were worried about that. And Rory, it's nice to meet you, even though it's virtually. Uh, but in any event, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Never a dull moment in our industry. I don't think there ever has been, Glenn, that we've known each other. But certainly things are really churning right now in our industry. So I'm excited to have a conversation with you guys. You know, it's funny, Kurt, you mentioned how long we've known each other. I was trying to think in preparation for this podcast, when we might have first met. 
And if, if I'm right, I think, you know, it was when you came and visited me when I was on the commission, I think it was you, I think it was John Bear, and I think it was Aldi Warnock and, and me and probably a couple of people from the PUC, but, um, Aldi is probably like in a boat in the Caribbean right now. John Bear's running MISO. You're running an $8 billion energy company, and I'm recording podcasts with Rory in my basement. So uh, I'm not sure where I went astray there. but I'm just going to say, Glenn, that's exactly right. Uh, that's when we did meet the first time. And so you have a good memory. Uh, and I think Aldi is on that boat. Um, so I, I'm still working to try to figure out how I'm going to get to the boat. And hopefully that's uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, it's a tough, right. a tough gig in this industry. <laughs> That's right. Just can't get away. Well, we'll be sure to ship off this podcast to Aldi so he gets a good <laughs> listen. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we got a lot of ground to cover today, and there's a lot going on. And Kurt's just the perfect guy to make sense of it all. We want to talk PJM. We want to talk Texas. Uh, maybe a few places in between. But maybe Kurt, if you wouldn't mind, let's start at a high level and. You know, you, you've spent a lot of money in the energy space and, uh, you know, probably as it relates to PJM, I'm not sure over the course of a career, anybody's been more responsible for the deployment of at-risk capital than you. So, you know, talk about your investment philosophy a little and let's start at a high level and work our way down. You know, what do you look for when you're making a decision to spend a couple billion dollars in this space? That's a good question. <clears throat> you know, I think... Um, because this is a tough business and a lot can go wrong in this industry, I think the number one thing, in my my opinion, that uh, I've learned from, I've made, uh, I haven't done it always as well as I would like to, but is the entry point. And this is a business that goes through cycles, and you have to pick your entry points right. I think if you're buying at the top of the cycle, you have a very difficult time making money. I think if you can buy at the bottom of the cycle, you have a very good chance of making money in their business. And when I went to Energy Capital Partners, I think we did a very good job of you know buying at the right times of the cycle and selling at the right times of the cycle. And then you know when I came to this company, we were coming out of bankruptcy. I felt like that was the right time. You know, a company coming out of bankruptcy uh, is the right time to enter the company and to bring it out. I think the other things that I talk about are stable market structure, which is also very difficult to find these days. Equity markets are not real thrilled with the uncertainty that comes with unstable market structures, and that makes it hard to make money in this business. Of course, you know, as you get to the individual assets, the core things that we always talk about, which is access to the essentials, you know, you got to be able to get on the transmission grid freely. You've got to have access to water, depending on what kind of generation type you have. But for most fossil fuels, you have to have access to water. So there's a number of things that go into that decision-making process as well. But I think, again, the, the biggest issue is really making the, the right entry point. And I think that really sets the tone for the long term and gives you the opportunity for things to happen around you that may not be as good as you'd like, but because you got in at the right entry point, it makes up for a lot of that. Yeah, Kurt, how do you make sure that you didn't wait too long? Yeah, it's a good question. But you know, Roy, I don't think you can sweat that. I, I, I think you're going to make some mistakes. I've made a number. I think on average, if you're, you know, eight out of 10 times, you get it right, <clears throat> you're going to be fine. There may be some times where you miss the cycle. I think people get too fixated on that, whether you're buying or selling, if you're at the exact right point. I think it really is more about making sure that when you're buying, you're in a cycle where things are down. And when you're 
selling that things are on the high side. So uh, you're not going to always get that right. I think if you sweat it too much, you won't pull the trigger when you need to. But people aren't going to always, you know, get that right. I've never really pressed myself to be exactly right. Um, I just wanted to be generally right. And if you can do that in this business, I think you can make money. Yeah, following up on that, I mean, where would you say we are now, Kurt? Because I mean, it seems like we're just in a really odd time right now, coming off of COVID, having, at least in the results to PJM, having a capacity auction in a long time. You know, you're retiring an awful lot of megawatts, and we'll get into some of those discussions. But where are we now in this cycle? Because it seems like it'd be a particularly challenging time to prognosticate on that. Yeah, it is really difficult. This is probably the most difficult time that I've ever seen in the industry. I think you have to almost get technology specific too. For example, on the renewables side and batteries, there's a tremendous amount of capital that is chasing investment in that. And you you know, generally speaking, when there's a lot of capital chasing something, you need to be aware of an investment in that. But also when you look at coal, there's no doubt that there are a number of pressures on coal-fueled power generation and there's more coming our way. And certainly, you know, making an investment in coal, you would have to feel very good about the value that you're paying in order to really enter into that. And, you know, that's not something that we are interested in because of that difficulty. Gas is really a tough one. You can argue that gas power plants are going to be needed for many years to come. And I believe that's the case. However, it's very difficult to guess the headwinds that may be coming that way, given climate change and given the potential for policy by federal and state elected officials. But the most important thing that I've noticed around fossil fuel power generation is the financial community, and in particular, the large asset managers, have made it their business to discipline markets as it relates to environmental, social, and governance investing, ESG, we call it. And you can be right on some of these technologies, and you still cannot get the stock price that you would expect given the underlying cash flows because the investments are out of favor with the investment community and especially the large players. A demarcation line, in my opinion, in this entire ESG trade that is on right now came when Larry Fink pinned his first letter. And it really changed the dynamic and it really put pressure on other large asset managers. I would argue that the asset managers are the one driving right now investments that are related to climate change more than public policy. The public policymakers have had a hard time really getting anything done, but the large asset managers have certainly changed the investment picture. And that in turn affects companies because capital is king. You have to have it, but you also have to be cognizant of how you're, if you're a public company, of how your stock is traded. Yeah. And that's a fascinating dynamic, right? I mean, and it's not just about the numbers anymore, right? So, I mean, it has to get a little murky. I mean, you're a former count, if I remember correctly, Kurt, right? You're, um, yeah. I mean, how do you value that? I mean, it must be hard. Yeah, it is very difficult because you don't know, you know, what the the longevity of assets are right now. And and frankly, if you look at, I'll freely admit this. So you look at our stock price, which has struggled somewhat because of the winter storm URI event in Texas. But prior to that, it has struggled because, in my view, there is a terminal value issue, and it gets directly to this notion of what is the longevity of a natural gas asset. I think there is a reality to that. 
But then there is also the perception of that in the financial markets. And the perception right now is, I don't know, and I'm not sure I want to touch it. What I think the reality is going to end up being is that, you know, gas assets are going to be around for 25 years and they're going to play a different role over that mm-hmm. time frame. And they'll certainly generate a lot of cash flow, but the markets aren't willing to give you that value. And so it is really difficult right now to value things. And, and I think people are going to be missing it. And there's no doubt that it's really difficult on the renewable side and on the battery side. It's all very difficult. And you throw into that the moving target uh, that markets are these days. Uh, you know, PJM is a good example of it. We don't really know what the capacity market design is going to look like over the next five years or 10 years. And so this makes it a really difficult place to put money. Stock valuations are no different than any other commodity. It's supply and demand. And as it relates to companies like ours, the demand for our stock is down because of the uncertainties that exist and there's a multitude of. I do believe that, you know, it'll prove out over time that the value of this company is great. But that doesn't matter when you have shareholders who want to see, you know, your stock move up in the next six months. Right. <laughs> you know, public right. companies, you get your scorecard every three months, you know, so when you do your earnings call. It's harder to quantify that uh, above ground risk, but is it something that we should be doing? Is it something that's necessary? Is this transition necessary for the industry? What you call the above ground risk, it is incredibly important to try to estimate its impact on the value of an investment. You know, I don't think you can cop out and say that because I can't control it, I can't estimate it. I think that's often done best through scenarios, but you do have to pick a path. Not making a decision is making a decision, and you can miss out on something. I think what you do is you do your analysis. You spend the time understanding, you know, what the political environment is, what the regulatory environment is, and you have to make educated guesses. And obviously, you got to rally your people around those decisions. It is treacherous waters, but it can be done. And I definitely think that that risk is something that you have to try to quantify. We spend a lot of time trying to do that. You have previously noted that that Vistra owns 36 natural gas plants, one of the country's largest fleets, but that you don't plan to buy or build any more. Instead, intend to invest more than a billion in solar farms and battery storage units in Texas and California as you try to transform the business to survive in an electricity industry being reshaped by new technology. You said, I'm hell-bent on not being the next blockbuster video. I'm not going to sit back and watch this legacy business dwindle and not participate. That is a heck of a statement. You're done building gas-fired units and all in on building solar and batteries. You know, you said over the next 10 years, you intend to spend $6 billion on renewables and storage. You just told us how you need to be aware of situations like that. So how do you plan on pulling that off? I don't recall that I said exactly that I would never invest in another gas plant, although I think it is very unlikely, and I may have said that, but fair enough. And I certainly am not going to build a new gas plant. I, I've been there, done that. I don't know many people that made money being the first owner of a gas plant in this country. Very few people made money when they they built that and then the creditors end up owning it, selling it. What I'm more than happy to do though, and I've made a lot of money off of doing this, which is being a third or fourth buyer of those assets. And that's all about timing, as I mentioned earlier. You know, I think the difference 
in my opinion, with regard to the uh, renewables and batteries, is that I do believe that there is going to be a significant amount of support, both federally and by the states, uh, to support new build of clean resources. Climate change, in my view, is real. It's something we're going to have to deal with. And if you think we're going to compress the time period by which we build all this generation out over the next 10 to 20 years, the grid today was built over 70 years. We're talking about accelerating something over the next 20 to 30. That's the size of the current grid. And we're talking about electrification, which is going to increase the amount of use of electricity, not decrease it. That is a tall order. And you got to believe that that's ultimately, you know, that growth rate is something that if you have the right sites, you have the right capabilities, you have access to capital. And then you have, like us, we have a big retail business that you can sell this to because the demand for green products is growing, that we ought to be able to turn that into something to make make money. That's why we think we'll be successful at this. We have tremendous sites, tremendous capability and understanding of the markets, and we have a great retail business to sell to. This is going to end up being a very fast-growing market. We feel like we can make money in this, and you know we're going to basically invest in our share of it. But certainly, there are going to be others that invest, and there's going to be some that misprice it and will end up going bankrupt, and hopefully, we'll be able to buy their assets from them. But at the end of the day, we think we have a role in this changing world that we have from the electric generation standpoint. And we have a big pipeline of investments that we'd like to make. And as I said, we've got a a growing retail business that we can sell to. Yeah, and I'm fascinated by that retail component. Could you could you just expand a little bit on that and how how you think about it? Because there's different ways to develop renewables in this country, but obviously consumers standing up and telling you, the supplier, we want this, just seems to me a very American way of going about it versus other methods that have been employed. Just talk about how that's developed in your view, how you see the current supply demand dynamics as it relates to retail offerings for green products. Yeah, you know, I think, Glenn, the the game changer in all this is that with or without the tax credits on the federal side, and it depends on what part of the country you're in, but let's just say, for for example, Texas, the renewables, in particular solar, but also wind, are cheaper to build than gas plants are. And what's interesting is no longer do you have to say to a customer that if I sell you a green product, that I'm going to have to charge you more. Uh, I remember the surveys we did early on in this business where we said, would you be willing to pay 10%, 20%, 30% more for a green product? And people said no. But then you ask them, do you, would you like to have a green product? Just that question. And they, of course, said yes every single time. But when you said that you had to pay more, that's no longer the case. My sense of what's happened is, is that people do want to do the right thing by the environment. And they definitely want to do the right thing in the environment if it doesn't cost them something more. And I think that's been a huge game changer that's out there, right, for the retail business. You know, what we're going to do as we grow our business on the, the generation side, uh, the supply side of the equation is going to change for us. But we're, we still believe it's a good investment for us. And we also think it's a good risk management tool to own steel on the ground. We still believe that that is the right thing to do. It's going to look different, though, in the next 20 years. But we have 
the capability to be able to do that. And, and as I said earlier, the, the market expertise to be able to do that. On the retail side, this is about structuring the products and services that our customers need. But you know, it really doesn't really look that much different to the customer, other than that we are able to provide them with a number of different clean and green products, which is you know more and more in demand. And we've seen that in every market we're in. And interestingly, in Texas as well, I think people think of Texas a big oil and gas state, but there are a lot of people in this state, and it's a changing state, that are interested in buying green products as it relates to electricity. Okay. Uh, why don't we switch over and talk a little bit about PJM issues here for a minute? You know, we've spent a lot of time, Kurt, talking about capacity markets on this podcast. We had Chairman Glick on a two months ago talking about the capacity markets as a piggy bank for generators and offer a view that we should be de-emphasizing capacity and moving more towards an energy and ancillary services model for compensation for generation. We heard Joe Bowring, the market monitor for BJM, take a kind of a different view, talking about the importance of capacity markets as providing a valuable long-term signal for generators. You know, you're CEO, you're making investment decisions. How do you think about capacity markets and the role they play and the role they should continue to play moving forward? You know, I'm a bit agnostic to whether you have a capacity market or not. I think market designs can work. But I think they come with different attributes and certainly different risks. I think the market that was designed in PJM has done exactly what it was designed to do. I know that sometimes we think with all the changes in MOPERS and things like that, that we think of PJM as changing quite a bit. But in fact, the returns that it has brought to assets in PJM over time have been relatively constant relative to other markets. It certainly has carried a much higher reserve margin than most markets, but in turn, it's been a high highly reliable market. I don't know that I would argue with Chairman Glick. You know, I have a lot of respect for him, but I think there's some assets that probably have earned their keep in the capacity markets. Maybe there's a segment of the market, and this may be what he's talking about, of assets that really don't run much for energy and have not provided a lot in terms of reliability that their time may have come and that maybe the capacity payment has kept them in longer. But I do think the overall benefit to the market has been reliability. Certainly, um, prices are a little bit higher than they might be in a state like Texas, but I think you're getting something for it. You know, the Texas market in comparison an all-energy market has really been a white-knuckle market, and it continues to be that way, and we can talk about that later. I have been a fan of capacity markets because I do think it reduces volatility and it helps manage an otherwise volatile market. I mean, even with battery storage, we still have a product here that you really can't store for long periods of time and great quantities. And so it, by its very nature, and the demand changes very quickly due to weather, And so by its very nature, it's a volatile product. I think capacity markets have reduced that volatility and allowed us to manage that for end users. And so in in my view, they've done their job. I think the difference is that, first of all, as I said before, a lot of people don't like paying people for doing nothing. And that's really the philosophy in Texas. But I think more and more states are saying that. But I think the other thing is, is that with the increase in intermittent resources, I think that people were beginning to ask themselves, is it just capacity we want? Or is there a particular type of capacity we need to work in conjunction with intermittent resources? And I think we're getting to a point, and I believe this will be where we'll head at some point, as we get more and more intermittent resources, you're also going to have lower prices for energy. 
given their zero marginal cost, that we're going to have to start paying for attributes for reliability, what I'll call reliability resources, which can come in the form of gas, but certainly coal. Nuclear is more obviously a baseload resource and will still be around because of its zero emissions. But I think it's going to change in terms of how we pay people. And I know that we'd like to see capacity payments go down. That may be the case, but markets have to be able to pay the marginal resource that results in a reliable grid, enough revenues to keep it in the market. And so that's either got to come from capacity, it could come from energy, or it could come from ancillary services, but it has to be sufficient to keep that marginal reliability resource in the market. And I think it's going to change over time. And capacity markets, I just think it has that bad stigma that, you know, you're paying for something that, and for somebody that's not really doing anything for the market, which is why I'd rather see targeted ancillary services or attribute products that pay for the kind of things that we specifically need in the markets. Yeah. And I mean, I, I struggle with that concept of like paying assets for not doing anything because just because an asset's not running doesn't mean it's not doing something. I mean, it's, yeah. it's there. It's an insurance policy. It's available if needed. And. You know, the, the world you're talking about, which I agree with, is a world in which there's, a, you know, a certain subset of assets that are running very little. But at those times they're running, they're really important and really needed. You can already sense, even though PJM's sitting there with, you know, pretty good reserve margins right now, you talk to some of the planning people at PJM and they're starting to get a little anxious as they look out into the future and realize that with each, you know, sort of one of these larger central station generators that's retiring, it's sort of chipping away at that, you know, insurance policy, for lack of a better word. So I agree with you. I mean, this is something that you know, we're going to have to get figured out here because there, there, there are going to be these assets that are just sitting there that look to the world like they're not doing anything, but they're playing a very important role. Yeah, I just wonder if we got to change the terminology. I think capacity markets have Maybe. gotten a bad name, but you are exactly right. And, you know, what's interesting, you know, PJM, you know this, but just did an analysis. They said if they had 50 percent, 50% renewable penetration, they'd need a 70% reserve margin. Yeah. Those are assets <laughs> that are, for the most part, not doing something until they are, are needed. But that intermittency, and we've been talking about this now in Texas for the longest time, that while we've seen our reserve margin drop, but our increase in intermittent resources, that's going in the wrong direction. And then you see kind of what happens when that happens, right? And you've seen this happen in California as well. There's three things we got to balance in this. This industry. And we used to have two. It was affordability and reliability. Now there's a third leg to the stool, which is emissions. And if you let any right. of those get out of whack, and in particular, any of the two other than reliability and reliability suffers, you know, we're going to have times where we're not going to have enough uh, electricity and we can't run our businesses. We can't uh, air condition our homes. I'm concerned about that because I think people would like to see it go in the opposite direction, but that's not realistic. And I worry about the leaders in our country, uh, the elected officials, and who is advising them on this, because I do not think they understand the critical nature of having reserves and the right kind of reserves as you increase the intermittency into the grid. And it's going to be very important. And I'd hate to see us get into a tough situation. We, we can fix it and we can do it right on the front end. But if we don't, we're going to have reliability issues down the road. So we kind of have to ask you about the MOPR, the minimum offer price rule, because, well, just because uh, perhaps the one thing everyone can agree on is it's currently a mess in PJM. How are we going to get out of it? I actually believe that FERC did the right thing 
with the Moper at the time. And it's very difficult for me to accept supposedly a competitive market where you can get a out-of-market subsidy and then specifically earmark that to reduce the actual cost of your business and then offer in at a price that suppresses price. And in some cases, to do it knowingly, willingly, and actually be ordered to do it. And I think they got stuck in a very bad place. The reality of it is, though, is that the Moper is dead on arrival. The the states hate it. It's kind of like what I um, said earlier about capacity markets. Uh, Maybe we need to change it because just for change sake, but I think it's on its way out. I will say in this last auction in PJM, it really did not matter. The unispecific exemptions were used, I would suspect, in many cases. It did not really do anything in terms of keeping any resources out. And so I think it may be a a lot to do about nothing. And I also think it creates a big issue for PJM and for FERC and also for market participants with the states. And so I'm in favor of doing something different and certainly have ideas around that. But, you know, I think the MOPR will be gone in the not too distant future and there'll be something else in its place. I suspect we're going to get into what you believe a suitable alternative might be in a little bit. But let's first transition to your home state there, Texas. We had Pat Wood on the show right after the February events there. You obviously were front and center for all sides of that equation as a utility, generator, retail provider. There was a lot of reaction at the time, and laws and regulations are starting to be changed how do you feel today about Texas? And this is in light of not too long ago, been some some summer issues as well. Um, and uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, some grumbling about participation in uh, demand response. Are we on the right path that will address the issues that we saw surface this winter? And and let me add a little corollary to that: if they're popping up again in the summer, or are these different issues now? We've taken big strides. There's legislation that's, I think most of it, if not all of it, has been signed now by the governor. And there's one particular bill called Senate Bill 3 that gets to weatherization. It also gets to registering gas and power infrastructure with the transmission and distribution utilities to make sure they're not cut off when they have rolling blackouts, if they have them. There was other legislation put in place, I think. The legislators did the right thing. They promulgated laws where it made sense to do that, where they they had oversight and understanding. And then they also requested processes through the Public Utility Commission of Texas, where the lawmakers did not have the expertise, but the Public Utility Commission did. So there's still work to be done, uh, Rory. I think we got some market design issues that we need to get through. There's a process also to map the joint electric and gas system so that we can determine what needs to be weatherized, but also registered. That's work that yet needs to be done. But the lawmakers put in place the processes that need to be put in place. So I think that the risk profile of the electric market, the integrated energy market in Texas, I think, has gone down because of what they've done. But it's not perfect. This related work that needs to be done after the fact, we're going to have to stay very close to that because we need to make sure that that is followed through and done in a way that continues to reduce the risk. The other thing is, just from my own company standpoint, you know, we're doing a number of things in terms of investing in our assets and in other you know, risk management products to try to manage the risk of the market. So I think the arrow is pointing up in Texas, but we also need to make some 
market design changes. There was no appetite for a capacity market, but I do think there's an appetite to pay for the attributes of whether it's in ancillary services or any other type of product, the attributes that dispatchable resources bring to Texas. You know, we've seen an enormous amount, 30% of the capacity now is uh, intermittent resources. And we've also seen a commensurate decline in reserve margins of dispatchable resources. And those two things together have created a real issue in Texas. I think that is partly market design and the the revenues and the revenue sharing, what goes to dispatchable resources as what goes to an intermittent resource. And I think there's an effort to try to balance that out a little bit in Texas. So I'm very comfortable with what we did. I think they're all moving in the right direction, but there's still more work to be done. As it relates to you know what's happened recently in Texas, uh, I think there were two things that happened. The weather was uncharacteristically hot, and we also had a number of power outages. Uh, we ended up having I would say it was a slightly higher than what is normal this time of year. So it wasn't great, but we never really got into the the reserves that ERCOT keeps. I think that ERCOT reacted because I think you guys both know this, but at the end of the day, the entire PUC, as well as the leadership of ERCOT, left after Winter Storm Uri. I believe that that has created an environment where you know ERCOT is going to give signals a lot earlier than they have in the past. In my view, what happened in the last week was a little bit of uh, the boy that cried wolf because we never got into an emergency situation and we never got really close to it, maybe a little bit, but not close to it. And the other thing that troubles me a little bit about what happened when they asked for conservation for the entire week without even knowing what the remainder of the week was going to look like. And it turned out that it would ended up being a dud. But it's actually counter to what you really want to do because it's suppressing price. Maybe that's not what your primary motivation is, but it does suppress price by calling for conservation when you don't need it. And that digs into the revenue stream that the dispatchable resources need to stay in that market. You know, I think we have to step back and say, you know, what is the market that we designed in Texas? And the reality is we we designed a market that is expected to go into scarcity so that there's enough revenues to get into the market to pay generators so that they either stay in the market or they build in the market. This should not surprise us. And it shouldn't be a surprise to ERCOT and they shouldn't be alarmed by it. There's going to be unplanned outages because power generation is run by equipment that doesn't always run uh, the way that you would like it to, even if you maintain it. But it's the reaction to that that I think was a little surprising in my mind by ERCOT. I think it overstepped what should have been done. And I think they're going to have to try to find their sweet spot on this. And it's not easy. I get it. I understand exactly why it happened. But I'm a little disappointed by it, and I hope uh, we get a little bit better in managing it because it also got national media on the heels of of Winter Storm Uri. We created national media in Texas again when I don't believe we needed to because I don't think we were in that position, ever in that position in that week that really deserved to have 
the kind of conservation and the concern that was exhibited. Let me just uh, ask on that. I mean, does it make any sense for ERCOT to, you know, have an early warning system for public consumers? I know with my phone service, you know, if if you're on a data plan and um, you're getting close to the number that that, uh, you start paying overages for, they give me an alert and they say, hey, you know, you've used this much data. And if you want to keep using data, by all means, but it's going to cost more. Does it make sense for ERCOT or even organized markets to have something like that? Or should people just be responsible enough to know where they're at and sort of understand? No, I think it is. Uh, And that's really my point is that I think there were some interim steps here. And by the way, there's legislation and they're they're working on it through a task force to come up with what that, you know, sort of emergency. So so ERCOT doesn't have all of this in in their hands right now. But here's what I'm referring to is that you know, ERCOT came out with conservation notice. In my opinion, uh, what they could have come out with is is something that said, we're getting close to the reserve levels where we may need to conserve. Stay tuned and we will let you know if we get to that point. I just felt like it basically jumped too early and they jumped mm-hmm. too early. Uh, and so I do think that you need to communicate with your customers. You could do something as simply as tell them, go to the ERCOT.com, and it shows you where the total megawatts are relative to the reserves. And it actually gives you the information you need to know if you're going to run into a problem with reserves. You could mm-hmm. communicate and educate your public. What I was concerned with is the action taken of actual conservation does uh, suppress price. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it needed to be that needed to happen. And it certainly didn't need to happen for the entire week. It was a blunt instrument. I know why it was done because people are gun shy and I get it. But we're going to have to be a little more uh, precise in how we execute that so that the market can actually function as intended. As I said before, the ERCOT market was designed to get into scarcity. It's the only way there's enough revenue stream in order to keep the assets that we need or to encourage. If we don't like that market design, then we need to come up with a different one. And I think we have some ideas of what we could do there. But we have to realize that that's the market that we designed. If I could, Kurt, maybe get back to what we talked to about at the beginning of the podcast when it comes to investment decisions and entry point. You know, as an outsider looking at Texas, you know, I see you know, low reserve margins, you know, you had relatively, you know, you had very high prices, you know, the earlier part of this year. I mean, it would seem to, and, and, you know, increasing demand, it seems like it would have all the factors that would suggest that the Texas market should be um, an attractive place for investment. But yet, the second thing you mentioned in terms of an investment and decision that was important was the regulatory climate. And it still seems like there's a lot of work to do there. You know, where are we in Texas? I mean, is, is this a place where people are going to put money or is are we still not there? Because clearly it's needed. I mean, I think we could probably all agree. I mean, have we created a climate that can get us out of this mess or are we still kind of just working our way still through it? You know, <clears throat> we're not there yet. And, you know, but I okay. do think we have we, I think we have the processes to get there. Uh, but we need some market design changes. And, and you know, and, you know, I, I believe the best way to do it is to continue. If we're not going to do a capacity market is to do uh, you take the, uh, the what they call the operating reserve demand curve, which I know you guys are familiar with in yeah. Texas and to extend it out to a, um, a slightly more significant reserve level, which 
has it kick in earlier. And, and what that ends up meaning is that you see higher prices earlier at earlier reserves, yep. which yep. gets more revenues. But in, 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 but in exchange, you, you drop the, the cap from 9,000 to something like 3,000 or 4,000. Okay. And it gets you, it gets you a much more stable market. You'll see more times where you're on the operating reserve demand curve. And I know this is, you know, this is inside baseball stuff, but the real point being is what we really would like to do is reduce the volatility in the market yep. and and increase the revenues to the generators uh, that actually are the ones that are providing, you know, the reliability product. Um, and I think there's a way to do that. I think, Glenn, you know, it needs to happen. But your point was very interesting. We're the long generator. We're the largest generator in Texas. We lost a bunch of money when prices were at $9,000 cap. And it wasn't because we didn't prepare ourselves. It was because the gas system failed uh, mm-hmm. miserably. And the gas guys made money off of their own dysfunction. And because the intrastate gas system is not regulated by really anybody. is right. very light touch over light over the Railroad Commission. So the only way to fix that one is you've got to make sure the gas guys weatherize and that they actually register their critical equipment with the transmission and distribution utilities. Because they got cut off when when the market started to do rolling blackouts because the PDUs did not know what was critical and what was not. Now, you, you scratch your head on that and say, how in the hell can that be? But that right. was that was the case. So there's a number of fixes I think we're getting at. And that's why I said we're getting at most of them, but there's still work to do. Um, and we can make this a great market. We can use... The, the same type of system, uh, all energy with the operating reserve demand curve, but we're going to have to make some changes. If we fail to do that, then we are likely to see this type of thing happen again. Uh, and, you know, I've been as vocal as anybody about this, and I've made no friends on the gas side because of this, but somebody has to speak the truth. Somebody has to say, this is what happened. And I know there's a lot of people who don't like it in Texas, you know, because the oil and gas lobby in Texas is huge. But I'm willing to do it, Glenn, because it is not in a state right now, today, where people are going to invest in ERCOT because the generators lost money. Overall, the generators all lost money during a period of time when you when you just laid it out, you'd say, geez, wouldn't they have made a lot of money? And anybody that did make money, they did it by accident. It wasn't skill or the lack thereof that created issues in the ERCOT market. It was bad market design and, and a really bad integration between gas and power. And that's not a market that people are going to invest in. They're not going to invest in something where they cannot rely on the skill of the companies to matter. And it all is up to chance. And I've, I know this because I've talked to investors, and, and this is why we're doing a bunch of things ourselves and investing tens of millions of dollars uh, to harden our system, why we're going to carry more length into the summer and the winter months, and why we're changing the way we do it. But it was also why I spent a ton of my time in Austin, Texas during this legislative session, because it is absolutely imperative 
that we get this right. PJM has been talking about working on the gas electric interface for years. And we've recently, as this has been moving forward with the fuel security initiatives and all of those things, it's becoming more apparent that there seems to be less than preferred engagement from the pipeline side of things. Are you saying here that the pipelines are actively incentivized to sort of drag their feet on this and not improve the work there? Well, so what I'm saying is, is that it's a perverse incentive. And I don't know, they're not going out of their way to make sure their system doesn't function. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is, is when you have a weather event like this, and there is an opportunity, they are incentivized, because they profit from the dysfunction of their own system. Mm. Because they have the ability to enact certain provisions in their contracts with generators that allow them to get out of their contractual obligations and to create value by selling to other people at very high prices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into you know whether there's legal ramifications on all this because I can tell you it's going to play out in the courts. Mm-hmm. But the system is designed in such a way with such light oversight. There is nobody in the state of Texas that that regulates uh, anything to do with pricing of natural gas on the intrastate, the, the, the pipelines within the state of Texas that that are under the purview of the Railroad Commission. On the electric side, we have the enforcement arm of the PUC and we have the independent market monitor, both of which scrutinize almost every single transaction in the market. There isn't anybody like that on the gas side. And so, you know, I'm not going to get into what's in their heads and I'm not going to get into what's legal or not. I am going to say that there's not symmetry there. And that symmetry creates risk on the on the electric side and it's undue risk. And we cannot have a, a weak electric market in a state like Texas, which has such a, an enormous economy for the rest of this country and the world. It doesn't work. It's not sustainable. And so that's the point I'm really trying to make. I'll let the rest of this play its way out. Now is the part, I think this is where you're going to bring us back to what the alternative in PJM might be. You own a lot of generation that produces carbon. You are retiring a lot of coal facilities. You're building stuff. All that said, you have been an outspoken proponent of a carbon tax. Why is that? And what do you hope to do with it? I've always said that it's hard for us to compete against a subsidy if we don't get it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the people who get the subsidy are high-fiving in the hallways, the, the, but the people that don't can't compete against it. There's no transparency to it, um, and there's no way to defend yourself. And so what all we've always asked for is, uh, you know, a fair shot and transparency and clarity and a carbon fee. Uh, and we're part of the, we're a founding member of the Climate Leadership Council, which is, you know, is, is a proponent of a carbon fee with a dividend back to those Americans that need help because it is going to increase price and a, a, a carbon uh, a border adjustment so that the, the, the U.S. companies that have to pay the carbon fee are not disadvantaged relative to their, uh, their, their foreign competition. Uh, but what I like about it is, is that it would create headroom for green resources to invest because it will increase the price of power. Um, uh, and I'm speaking now of a carbon fee. It provides transparency. Um, it it would incentivize um, uh, efficiency, uh, and it certainly brings uh, clarity. And it can be done 
in a competitive market environment. Um, and it would it and, and almost all uh, major economists that have looked at this believe that this would be the most efficient way to take carbon, uh, you know, out of the atmosphere uh, through a carbon fee. Um, and and so you know we believe. In fact, we modeled this, by the way. When I say this, EPSA did when we brought E3 in, and of all the 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 different uh, types of regimes you could put in place, a carbon fee actually was the one that reduced um, the amount of carbon uh, footprint, um, and it wasn't even close. So we were believers in it, but let me give you the other side of it is, which is I think the chances uh, are 20% or less uh, that we can get that through. I think it's growing. Uh, I would have said even six months ago, it was probably 5%, uh, and I'm talking about a national uh, carbon fee. I think you know we were hopeful that we might be able to find a way to do this inside of the the the, the PJM region. You know that I think that's a tall order. And so while I like the carbon fee um, a lot, uh, it I think it's difficult. The administration, current administration, has been more behind a clean energy standard. Now a clean energy standard can look like a carbon fee. And and so the devil's in the details on that, and we still have to see the details on it. Mm-hmm. But I do know there's people within the administration that are big supporters of a carbon fee, and we've begun to see some uh, movement on that front. I, I just think it's going to take time um, before we see a an economy wide carbon fee in this country. So what do we do, you know, in the interim? Because I don't see that happening in the PJM market. And Moper, as I told you guys, I think is dead in the water. And so I think, you know, what what do we do now to try to uh, move things forward? Uh, and I think that's a big question. There's, there, like I said, there's like nine proposals out there uh, to look at. And I think, you know, they all have certain aspects that may make sense. My My own interpretation of what PJM is trying to do is to get rid of Moper and then to have some uh, some ability, although I, I, I will admit that I, I think it's a bit weak, um, but to to deal with uh, out-of-market activities, um, you know, and but but not nearly as 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 rigid as the Moper is, and then go to a second round where they get into you know what's the what's the next what what's the next thing to do to make sure that the compensation for the types of resources they need is sufficient. Um, and and they're trying to do it in a, in a two-step process. I mean, what what we as generators have to believe is that you know if we give up Moper and we move on to what is largely you know a limited effort uh, to to keep subsidies from harming the market as designed, I think we then have to uh, uh, we have to believe that there will be a second tranche, a second round to this. Uh, and I think for some that's difficult. I'll tell you where I think it go, it's headed, though, and this is down the road, and I think this is just the way I think markets are going. And PJM, I think, will be a little bit slower than other markets to get here just because the uh, the geography is not nearly as conducive to solar and to wind, and there's only so much offshore wind you can put into the market. But nevertheless, I do think we end up with a bifurcated market where uh, renewables and batteries are allowed in the market, and then there's a residual market that you know conducts an auction, 
and sets capacity price. Um, and then I, I do believe even that over time will not be sufficient. Um, and there'll have to be some kind of attribute pricing for the kinds of, you know, ramping, uh, quick start, uh, the, those things that are, are necessary to also uh, run a grid with uh, significant intermittent resources. I think it's going to take a lot longer to build out the PJM market. It's just big, but it also is not the greatest place to to build um, renewables. So I hope that's helpful. Um, you know, I'm happy to dig into any in, in any depth on this, but <clears throat> you know that's kind of where I see it going. And I just don't have a lot of hope that carbon fee is going to happen anytime soon. So we're going to head have to head down a different path. I think. Uh, to replace Moper. How how soon that that bifurcated sort of two step auction process you were talking about, and then then the ensuing uh, attribute pricing? How far in the future are you envisioning that? <clears throat> how soon, I guess. Well, I mean, I think it could be part of that next phase that I mentioned, okay. um, and so, you know, I don't know how long that takes, but you know, I, I think we have to still. I I should say this too. I still think it's going to be a fight um, for FERC. It's going to be a challenge. I think it's a sticky thicket to get rid of Moper because Mm -hmm. the previous FERC, as constituted at that point in time, basically said that uh, the prior Moper, um, which, you know, allowed uh, a lot of investment from renewables and others to get through, was not just and reasonable. And then they put in this Moper. Um, that they obviously concluded made the market just and reasonable. You now have to, if you're going to take that away, the real challenge I believe that the FERC is going to have is how do you walk away from from those uh, mitigation measures uh, and say that the market is just and reasonable? And they're going to have to put something in its place. And what I've seen coming out of PJM, I'm not sure that that lives up to that. Um, and so I think there's a, just a challenge to get rid of Moper, um, not because anybody's advocating for it, because I think most people are willing to get on with it. It really didn't do much, and I don't expect it to do much in the next future off- auctions. But I also believe that there's a challenge as to whether the market's just and reasonable without it, based on prior precedent. So I, I think there's a lot of w- work to do here. Yeah, I agree 100%. I also agree with your assessment of the PJM's current approach to it. It's it's way off the mark and needs some serious help. But we're working on that. All right, Kurt, uh, we, don't have, we don't have a ton of time left, so it is rapid fire time. First up, the biggest challenge on your current position? I think regulatory and political uh, intervention. Can't control it. Okay. We spent time in Chicago and Texas. Which do you prefer? Both. Oh, you're a cop out. <laughs> I'm right. sorry, but it's a very political got, answer, I, Kurt. You realize that? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm usually not that like that, Glenn. But I, I, I have to tell you, I love both of them, though. So, is it food related? Part of the reason you enjoy both places? Well, I grew up in Illinois, and I'm a Chicago fan of all sports, ah. and so, and, and I think the city is a great city. Texas is a really nice place to live. So, you know, I, I think it's more of those things. Favorite job you've ever had? This one. All right. Another very political answer. Good work. <laughs> the most important quality of a good regulator? Listening. 
most important quality of a good business leader? Decisive. Who are your mentors in the energy business? You know, there was a gentleman named Steve Nave who I worked for uh, when I was at Reliant, who probably was had the biggest influence on my career. So I'd have to say, Steve, um, he was very influential. You just told us that you're you're from Illinois. You live in Texas now. When exactly did you decide to hop on the Crimson Tide bandwagon? Well, before it was a bandwagon, so uh, <laughs> oh, you know, they okay. weren't they weren't winning. They weren't winning, and so I can claim that you know I was a fan of the Crimson Tide before that. But uh, I have I have a, a a gentleman who uh, is a friend and and played for Bear Bryant, who I met in Atlanta. And I just uh, became infatuated with, uh, you know, with the Crimson Tide. And that's how I became a fan. But I'm obviously uh, very deep into it now. Fair enough. Fair enough. And finally, what keeps you up at night? You know, I always concerned about um, when you have a nuclear plant, there, you know, there's always a concern about something happening. I, I also uh, am very worried about cybersecurity events because we have customers. But anything or that might penetrate into our systems or our, our business that could have have an impact, you know, on a broad geographic area or, 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 you know, to a broad group of people I worry about. It's a tough area right now. All right, moving on. It's now time for our favorite section of the show, at least definitely Glenn's, uh, in which we offer unsolicited advice to someone whom we think needs it. Who are you going with and what are you saying? I hate to give anybody advice that doesn't know that I'm giving it to him and doesn't want to hear it. But, you know, I, I, you know, what I would say is I'd give my, the, my, the young Kurt Morgan some advice because I think it applies to some other people who will remain nameless. But I think listening, as I said earlier, calming down, not thinking you have all the answers, uh, bringing people along, building a team, rallying people around where you're taking them. Um, not always having to win your uh, every argument and every debate, um, and it's key to, the key is also listening because you never know somebody just might have a better idea than you do, uh, and if they don't, the process of bringing them along is what is really what makes uh, things successful. You know, I, I was told one time that um, you know the people above you. It's easy to uh, try to please them, but it's the people who are your peers and the ones that are below you that will really make or break you. And the way that you get their support is through good ideas, but also through listening to them, bringing them along. Uh, and so, you know, I, I can remember the day, Glenn may even remember this when he and I first met, I've changed quite a bit as I, and I think I've gotten better because I've listened more. Uh, I've been more patient. And I've tried to, to to bring people along with me, not dragging them along with me. So I think it's very important for people to listen. I would say that if, if I was going to give advice to anybody, I'd say the elected officials, both at the federal level and state, could could do themselves some good by listening to this type of advice. And I think it's very important that politics shouldn't just be about power. It should be about doing things for other people. And I worry uh, about our government right now and getting things done because I believe it's 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 turned into uh, a scorched earth effort. And, you know, only, you know, you have to win at any cost. And the problem is, is that you and I and the rest of us that are not in that process, we get caught up in it. And we're the ones that have to sort out and have to make a business run when there's inaction or bad action uh, for the wrong intent. 
not having to win every argument, Kurt, I, I didn't expect that you were going to be giving me advice, but uh, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess I'm a young Kurt Morgan. <laughs> yeah. I, well, there's a, there's a lot of us out there. Rory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's obviously a lot that we didn't get to this month, but uh, we definitely put in a solid session here. Kurt, invaluable insights. Thank you very much. Any final thoughts from you? Look, I appreciate it. Both uh, Glenn and Rory enjoyed the conversation. We in this industry produce a product that is intrinsic to everyday life. It, it's by its nature is volatile. And what we try to do is turn that into something that the average person can buy at an affordable price and feel good about and that it's reliable. And I would say that, you know, we're probably in the biggest change in the history of this industry as we try to go to renewable intermittent resources and maintain reliability and reduce the emissions because climate change is real and we need to deal with it. If we do this, we need to do it right and we need to have all the smart ideas on the table and we cannot exclude someone just because they may not necessarily agree with us politically. And I think it's really important that we get it right. And we've seen instances already where we have not got it right. And I think those are going to become the norm if we don't have a better blueprint going forward. I'm concerned about it, but I'm also an optimist. And I believe people will respond and will get will ultimately get this right. There is a way to maneuver this and make money, but you have to make a lot of the right decisions. And I hope our company is one of the ones that can do that. But it's a, it's a fascinating time in our industry. And, and like I said before, I really enjoyed uh, talking about it with you guys. Well, thank you very much. We were so happy to have you and we look forward to having you back to talk about how we got it right. Thanks also to our listeners for listening. And until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.